Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. I'm happy to be in your ears today. Hope you're having a great one. You know, every once in a while, I get a guest that I'm so excited to talk to that uh, I risk falling into fanboydom. And while I think I maintain my dignity in my conversation with this week's guest, it was a risk. It was a true risk because his music means so much to me. Kevin Kinney is a wildly talented songwriter and musician. He is the lead singer of a band called Driving and Crying, which is a cherished band in the southeastern United States among people over 40 and under 65. Caucasian people, probably. I'm not sure how big Driving and Crying is among the non-white set in the, in, the, in the southeast. But for real, these guys were such a big band when I was in college, and they remain prolific songwriters today. In the early 90s, they had an album called Fly Me Courageous that went gold and that threatened to take them to national stardom. But for a variety of reasons that Kevin discusses in this very candid and vulnerable conversation that we have today, it just didn't happen for them. Whether it was the fact that maybe they didn't want to play the game, they defied defied description from a genre perspective, they were hard to sell to radio outside of the Southeast, whatever it was. It just didn't happen for them on the same level it happened for Kevin's musical peers like Peter Buck at R.E.M. and a whole bunch of other bands. But as you'll hear, he's tight with all these guys. He's wildly respected, and he perseveres today. We talk a lot about artistic envy, a lot about artistic expectations. We talk about, in the end, artistic surrender, because I think that's what it takes And as Kevin says to me, he's never been happier than he is today playing small acoustic solo gigs outside of bowling alleys in Nashville, opening for Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls or for the Indigo Girls together, playing to audiences that appreciate his music or don't. But he's done chasing accolades. He's done chasing other people's approval. He's done trying to be anybody who he's not, artistically speaking. And I think that sense of just acceptance and surrender is what leads him to be so happy and and okay with the way things are going today. As he sings in one of the few songs that he plays here, he's playing for himself. And if you want, you can listen. I just had such a great time talking to Kevin in my basement last week, and I know you'll enjoy this conversation. If you're not familiar with Driving Crying's work, I invite you to click on a link in the show notes to my Driving and Crying sampler platter playlist that I've got on Spotify. It's got a lot of the music from the early days that are the more recognizable tunes for us older folks, and a lot of the stuff that I've listened to on the subsequent records from, say, 95 to the present day that I didn't really check into until about 12 years ago when I moved back to Atlanta. And we discussed that as well. So by all means, check out that playlist on Spotify, because I know you're going to go, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is great. I remember this. Or wow, this new music still feels as fresh and biting and relevant as the early stuff did. Kevin's on tour. He's constantly playing live. He's probably playing near you soon. By all means, check out the link to his live dates that I put in the show notes. And he's got a new album uh, with some incredible musicians, Bill Berry, Peter Buck from R.E.M., among many, many other notable uh, musicians that came out late last year. It's called Think About It. I've got a link to that 
in the show notes as well. I want to say big thanks to my friends, Mike Lean and Ed Roland for connecting me with Kevin and for trusting me with this conversation. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Kevin Kinney. I've been on tour with yeah. a- Amy Ray and the Indigo Girls. And they've got a new documentary out that my friend they directed. Do. Kathleen Horan directed a documentary about them. They didn't mention that to me at all. Mm. And I'm not in it. <laughs> no, They're really great. And I've been traveling with Amy. I did Cincinnati with Amy last week. Mm-hmm. Which one of the harmony out. is Amy? Which one's... It's Emily and Amy? Emily and Amy, yeah. yeah. Which one's Amy? Amy the is... The low? She's the hey. lower one. <laughs> okay. She's the lower one. We're going to need to relocate Colonel for this. Oh, really? No, no, no. I'm just... I'm asking. He'll no, settle, God he'll no. in a second. He's there we talking. go. So what, how have those shows been? They're really great. You know, um, it's a different audience for me, obviously, but they're just... It's a, you know, I'm doing well and I enjoy it. You know, I've got a new record that I made. It's my 20th album, I think, or 19th, something like that. I made in Athens with David Barbie again. And uh, he's the producer. He's the producer and bass player on half of it. It was one of these COVID situations, you know, uh, where I started it the January before COVID. And then so I got half of the record with a stand-up bass player and drummer and then COVID hit and so we had to reassess it so I had uh, the drummer from the Truckers and David Barbie play on side two mm. play the drums and bass on that side yeah and a couple of the fellas from R.E.M. on the and album Peter Buck plays on it and then the last song is um, Bill Berry jumped in and helped me out with the last song where did you meet Peter Buck for the first time in, a- in Athens uh, pl- Driving a Crime was playing 1985, 86? 85, 86. It mm. was our first shows in Athens. Yeah. He was one of our only four audience members. <laughs> for, because of the, you know, people forget that in Athens is not an Atlanta-friendly city. Yeah. They don't like Atlanta um, musicians. They, you know, it's an Athens-centric, you know, they're homegrown in London. <laughs> homegrown in London. <laughs> homegrown in London. But yeah, um, it's really yeah. I played Athens for I, I lived there for eleven years, and every time we did a show, the flagpole would put like former singer of Driver and Crying plays. Right, <laughs> because <laughs> it's not even, it wasn't even like grammatically. It was like it looked like a headline from a you know, it looked like an obituary. You know, uh, I don't know. Athens is very insular in their towniness. Yeah. You're either a townie or you're not a townie. If you're not going to be a townie, you're not a townie. townie. You were there for 11 years and you didn't earn that status? No. <laughs> you will not find a bronze guitar pick of Kevin Kinney on the streets right, of Athens. Right. Ever. But and I wrote a lot of songs there. I played there. I played a lot. I did a lot of good things there. But yeah. I don't know how they started. I just asked you how you met Peter Bach. But yeah, so I met Peter, and Peter yeah. was op- very open to the Atlanta bands coming. Uh, my, yeah. my bass player, Tim Nielsen, had mm-hmm. a band called the Night Porters, which were really big in Atlanta. They uh, they did well in Athens, and they opened for R.E.M. Right. in the early R.E.M. days. Oh, know. that's how. That was the connection. So Peter knew Paul, and Paul was their light guy mm. for their first two tours, or you know when they were still living in a van. Right. So, so we were all kind of family, but... I just really hit it off with them. We were talking about, because I was really uh, learning a lot about, you know, in Milwaukee where I grew up, it was very, you know, beatnik central, like not, or just beat poetry central. My best friend, Chuck Goldman, was, is a poet and 
and was friends with Jim Carroll. Wow. And so he, you know, he was one of those, he's from the Bronx and he turned me on to a lot of writing and, you know, my, I had a good, I had a good family of avant-garde artists and things like that in Milwaukee. And so I was pretty on my way to being well-read ish in the, <laughs> in the, uh, penguin, uh, <laughs> in the penguin books, classics. In, the, in the city lights penguin classic yeah. era you know the the Ginsburg and the all that Bukowski and things like that and which all seemed very romantic when you're 17 mm-hmm. and then when you're like 62 like I am now you're just like that's just disgusting right you know you're like oh it'd be so cool to just drink whiskey at a bar and then work at a slaughterhouse <laughs> work at a slaughterhouse <laughs> you know you know <laughs> Like, like a Bukowski type thing. Yeah, it's like yeah, not a post office, but a slaughterhouse. Yeah, I'm more of a Bilbo Baggins now. I'm more I identify with Bilbo Baggins more than Bukowski. I'm more like the the reluctant thief that is forced to leave his home by Gandalf to make a living, and then I, I get to return home safely. What were to you, my little hobbit hole? What were you and my four dogs? How old were you when you started playing guitar? Uh, I was the usual sixteen, probably. Yeah. What led you, know, you to pick it up? Ah, uh, the Ramones, probably. I think that was the first one I saw that I was thought I could actually play guitar. You just thought the Ramones were because their chords well, I saw were them pretty. Play at like nineteen seventy seven, at the uh, I was sixteen. I saw them play at the Summerfest. They were opening for Head East at a Summerfest in Milwaukee. What Head and East they was... were terrifying. Like they looked like they would just fucking kick your ass. Right, like, they were like. It was, jackets, it was like long four hair. in the afternoon, and they were just terrifying. And they did they did their set twice because <laughs> their songs were so short. They were so short, and and they're not that easy. People think Ramones songs are three chords, and very there's very few that are three chords. There's there's actually a lot of chords. Yeah. So I don't. I kind of saw that and saw myself in that. Like, I think that's really stripped down, bare essential music and i thought that's something i could do yeah and then later i got into bob dylan and things like that where you know i, I bought a, i bought an acoustic guitar or i inherited one from my friend richard epiphone and uh so i don't know i kind of i, I started branching off and then springsteen you know i saw springsteen you know early on and i tried to write songs like springsteen it was just a, a total disaster because mm. he writes story songs and so right. i was like little johnny you know i think my <laughs> right. first my first song was greaser it's about a, about a greaser, which yeah. is in a Milwaukee was a hoodlum, right? Yeah. You know, it was Fonzie mm-hmm. was a greaser, mm-hmm. so it was like it was like it was about greaser. It was like how this kid's a nerd, like I don't know, like a kid that's in the chess club and the drama club and the Glee club, but then at night, you know, he puts on a leather jacket and he goes out there. He becomes and he's a, a greaser. He's a greaser. <laughs> it's Not about, that it's autobiographical, but very close. It's the duality of man. Yeah. Okay, so you go from the Ramones to being a Dylan Dylan wannabe. How's that progression? Like, you got to trade in your electric guitar, or you augment no, it with just, an acoustic guitar, and well, I guess, I guess it set me up for the rest of my life because what I was, what then I became somebody who wanted to do both. Like, yeah, want to be a punk rock band, but then I wanted to do both, like also play folk music. So. Or do whatever it is. So I kind of incorporated. That's kind of what happened with Driving and Crying, where right. Driving and Crying was like, you know, a hard rock band. But then also they let me, you know, branch out into doing pretty songs or whatever. And most of our records, there's a 
few songs in there that are introspective or right. just a little stripped down. And your solo stuff is kind of more folk. The solo stuff is all most ninety percent of it is all like more folk, and you know, somewhere between Bob Dylan and Glenn Campbell. Right, right, yeah. You know, it's got some drums and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, and and then you know, it tries to be edgy, but it's really not. I have one record that is really great record I made with Warren Haynes called "The Flower and the Knife." It's just a really beautiful record. Warren Haynes from the Almond Brothers. Yeah. He produced it. We made it in Hoboken at oh, Water cool. Music, and mm-hmm. it's a great record, you know. So these shows you're doing in Nashville at the bowling alley. You doing acoustic stuff? Is yeah, is it you I'm and a stool with a it's mic? Me, it's me in a chair and uh, my pedals, and then my guitar player Lauer played with me once, and then Aaron Lee Tashton played with me the second time. Tomorrow is Lauer again, and then my friend Tom Clark from New York City and his guitar player. And then we have just, it's open to whoever wants to sit in, but nobody wanted to really sit in yet. It's, uh, you know, they <laughs> can't get arrested in well, Nashville. Well, I don't know if they feel like working. So I'm, I'm kind of like torn between like, you know, I've got like in these great guitar players in the room and then I'm yeah. kind of torn between like, because I know how it is like when I'm at, at a show and like mm-hmm. I'm there to enjoy it. And then all of a sudden they're like, hey, would, do you want to do the encore? And I'm like, right. I immediately go from not working to like, Oh my God, I'm going to be working. Yeah. And that's like, I know what song is it going to be? Where do I go? How do I get back there? Yeah. Are they going to call me early? Do I, I can't go outside? You know, right. So I'm, I'm constantly working. So I, I don't want to put that pressure on people. Mm-hmm. But I do, if they're chomping at the bit to do something, I'm there. They could just grab a guitar. So right. That's my thing is like, halfway through a song, you think you can do add to this? Just start playing. I don't care. What you kind know? of bands were you in in high school? None. None? Uh, I wasn't in a band. I was a roadie for a punk rock band called the Haskells, and I moonlighted with a band called the Lubricants for a couple of shows. <laughs> uh, well, mid, the, was the Midwest. I, was, I really wanted to be a roadie. I was yeah. a really, I was into, I liked acting. I did the, the drama club and the glee club and things like that. I hated being on stage. I loved roadies. I really wanted to be a guitar tech. That was my goal in life, was to be a roadie. And I roadied for a band. I was 16 or 17 working in bars, you know, in the Midwest and Chicago and Milwaukee and things like that. And I was a roadie, you know, I carried in. Bands back then had to bring in your own PA. There was, there weren't a lot of clubs that played original music, very few. And so what you had to do was scout out a city. And in Milwaukee, there was a lot of them, but Chicago as well, like a back room of a bar that had a wedding hall. And you would go in and say, you know, hey, we'll give you so much if you let us use your wedding hall. And that would work for about two or three sessions until the guy was like, you know, he went from having like four old men at the bar to having like 60 people with mohawks and blue right. hair. And, <laughs> and he liked it because it was money, but then, you know, he had to clean up. So there, there was a cool environment. So you had to bring your, you had to own your own PA and set your own PA. Yeah. So yeah. that was kind of one of the caveats to that. You know, you were in the drama club because you wanted to be a, a tech on. Or- well, I was in the stage crew first. Oh, okay, right. And then I did the drama club, but it was too stressful for me trying to remember songs. I mean, I mean, the uh, Indigo Girls asked me if I could. They have this thing where at the end of their show, they do closer to find, mm-hmm. and the opening act usually sings the third verse. Right. I didn't write the third verse. Obviously, they did. Mm-hmm. It's almost. It's really hard for me to remember things I didn't write. Yeah. Like if I wrote it, I can visualize it. I know I can know exactly where it is. Compartmentalizing my catalog in my brain and remembering it. Driver Cry never uses a set list. We do we can do any of the two hundred songs. 
you know, at a drop of a hat, but mm-hmm. you have, it takes a lot of mental. So, so just like the. Right. Yeah. As it stopped by the bar. That's the third verse. At 3 a.m. To seek solace in a bottle or possibly a friend. I woke up with my headache, my head against the board. Twice as cloudy as I've been the night before. Went in seeking clarity. Okay, that took me like a month <laughs> to remember that. To remember that. Yeah, yeah. It was like almost maddening how many times I had to write it down and write it down and write it down. Right. To remember it, and even to this day, if I don't like when I sing it with them, and they all look at me when I'm doing it, if if I catch their eye, I'll just start <laughs> Homer Simpsoning and daydreaming, and I'll forget the line. Right. Yeah. It's pretty simple. It's just there's four lines. So I was like, man, I don't think acting's for me. Unless I write it. You know, I was thinking about you today. I'm thinking about just comedians in general. It's a different skill set, obviously, but also it's like the job for a comedian has to come up with an hour of material. Mm-hmm. Or How long is your set usually when you headline? You headline, it's 45 to 60 45 minutes. 45 to 60 yeah. minutes. And it's pretty fresh, right? Like you don't have to... <laughs> Yes, it's all new. It's pre- but it mo- it's mostly new. I mean, <laughs> well, you well, know, you get it set. It's I mean, like it's like your first album. Your first hour takes you ten years to develop, right? And then people, and this hasn't happened to me yet, right? But I've interviewed several comedians who are just on the cusp of breaking or who have just broken, uh-huh. and they're like, "Shit, I got to go write a new hour because all of a sudden people know who I am, right?" And they, they've seen my clips on Instagram, and they come to see me. Right. But I got to have fresh material because they know everything already. Right, which is like, for musicians, I almost kind of wish they just wanted to hear new songs. Right. But for me, they want to hear the first joke you told in 1985 over and over <laughs> and over and over and over. Right. They tell the dog joke. Right. Oh, that's so funny. It's like, yeah, I told the dog joke, like, that was my first my first act. I know, but tell it again. It's like, well, you know, I mean, dog joke. So but- okay, my dog. Here's the thing. You know what you like. So I mean, it's a, it's a little bit when you're doing new stuff and yeah. making the and, and and hopefully it flies. But I mean, for a musician, we have to like we have to reach back and recreate mm. things for you that was a constant memory for you. When you were in 1989 or 1990. That's right. And so it's a little bit harder to try to sneak. You know, here's a new song. Everyone goes to the bathroom. Of course. <laughs> you know, right. like, let's go get a beer. We did something new. We just we just recorded this one. It's not out yet. Just recorded right. it. Right. They're leaving. Not out yet. We're leaving. Yeah. Haven't really tried it out yet. No, you <laughs> care about us as people. <laughs> you said something. So one night we were at, we were over at our mutual friend Ed's house one night a few years ago, and um, I had said something. I said something to the effect of like I was very much into driving crying when I was uh, uh, 25 years ago, and then I sort of didn't listen to you for a few years. And when I came back here 12 years ago, I was like, oh, he's got like eight new albums. <laughs> Right. And I said, I was like, I really like the new stuff. And you said something that is totally logical, but surprised me. You said, well, you know, I've gotten better. Oh, yeah. It, it made me think that like, oh, I just assumed like talent was constant, but you've been playing the guitar now for 50 years. Of well, course, you've gotten better in the last 25. Yeah. Well, you know, you, your timing and your delivery and just your, I think your techniques get mm-hmm. a little more refined. I think 
I don't know. It would be really funny. I'd love to. That's a good story, though, to have like a, a guy who's just really great, like mm-hmm. Ingving Malbstein. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like, and then you right, see him yeah. later, and he's like, God, he got worse. <laughs> right. He's terrible. It's the uh, curse of the punk rocker. I mean, you want to just do what you want to do, and then uh, once you have to do it 4,000 times, yeah. eventually you get better at it. I think I'm, I sing better than I did. I think that my songwriting is... I mean, I go back and, you know, when I... Like that song, Scarlet Butterfly, I, I wrote, you know, it's a really poignant song for an 18-year-old that to write that, you know, I don't know who wrote that, but that's pretty advanced for an 18 year old. And then at 60, musically or lyrically, just lyrically, you yeah. know, it's, it's pretty like very, it was very topical mm. for what's happening now, you know, or what happened in the Trump era, you know, kind of things like that. It was very, but I guess it's all, you know, human struggles always been there. It's kind of about, about that, you know, caterpillar character mm. and iron clad cocoon bundled up in nonsense at the end is coming soon. For the prophets have all told you the judgment day will shine and the caterpillar character will die without a life, you know. Mm-hmm. And that I have learned to live, not die. And the, you know, a vicious scarlet butterfly, spreading rumors, spreading lies, though never ever leaving home, spreading lies about this world. Until you have walked one mile in my shoes, seen innocent people torn and abused, standing there naked, standing there scared. Come live, come die, come grow, come fly. So... I mean, for an 18-year-old, I thought that was That's pretty, pretty heavy. Yeah, and so yeah. I listened to that, and then I actually re-recorded it for my new record because of that. Because I was like, I would like to do that a little bit, a little more seriously. A little bit of foreshadowing and a little bit of psychic abilities that maybe not, not psychic meaning like you're just drawing from the energy of the world. You know, you're, you're tapping into things that might happen or do happen or just things like, you know, there's a little bit of that that goes on where a lot of the, some of the songs that I don't think make any sense, make sense later. Yeah. You know, they mean something more later. You know? what, and what did it mean to you three and a half decades before? Well, well, no, when you, when you re-recorded it for the album, it's three and a half or four decades later, right? It just what did you was, hear in the, what, what did you want to impart? I could just lean, I guess just kind of leaning on the words a little bit more. Mm. Like, I think when the Driver Crime version is like, I got a pick, kick, Terry Nine, clack a coom, I wasn't really mm-hmm. laying on the word. I wasn't really like pushing the word and trying to make myself listen to it. You know, mm. I was trying to, I sold the song basically from a Patti Smith song. So I was probably just trying to channel yeah patty smith at the time i I really wasn't really aware of what it was saying but that happens now there's songs like fly me courageous that are just make no sense to me at all i (laughs) i wrote it and then like a year after we wrote it we went to the gulf war and all of a sudden it kind of made sense to somebody like flying mother america brandishing her weapons Mm. and all these I don't. I don't know where I'm leading. Where this is leading from? But well, just being better than I thought. But just moving better, beginning. It's just being more aware. Mm. And I have a thing now where I just say to myself in my head before I go on stage, like this is my last show, right? And I don't want to go on that stage. It's like I'm standing on the side of stage, and it's about to start. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the last place in the world I want to be. I don't want to go up there and do this. And then I say, well, okay, this is your last show. So every show is my first. I, I'm nervous like it's my first. Right. And then I just do it and I try to live up to the, like, 
like I don't jump around or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm just like uh, set list wise, the arc of the show. I just want to be like that's not, that. If that was my last show, that'd be good. Mm-hmm. I'm cool with that. And do you really feel like you don't want to, do you dread performing? Yeah, I do. I kind of do, yeah. It's like jumping in the water. I I dread jumping in the water. But once you're swimming, you're like, what was I worried about? This is is freaking awesome. I could be a fish. I could be a fish, honey. Yeah. (laughs) I could be a fish. She's like, what? (laughs) Nothing. You know what I mean? Does it's that like go that. back to you? Does that go back to you? Your... See, you probably have the same feeling. Like you're standing on the side of the I stage, ready to perform, like, and get, you're like, "I just go, I just like, oh, oh fuck, I tell these same jokes, and I don't know what's new, and why am I, I you know, like I, and I invent audience... all kinds of crazy shit in my head, right. to psych myself out. Oh, you do for some reason, and then right. I just go, just go, quit being a right total wuss. It's and hard. Go out there. I mean, you don't have shit to stand behind. I mean, the bigger the production for Driving and Crying, the mm. more I feel comfortable. Right. Going out, like my friend Todd Snyder walks out there with no shoes on and a mm. guitar yep. and kills it. And there's thousands of people out there. Amy Ray does that. She's just great. Todd was hanging around Memphis in 1990, yeah, sure. 91 when I was there. He was. Oh, yeah. Me and Todd were. We, that's where we met. We yeah. became really. I'm going to see him tomorrow. I waited on you one time at the Peabody Hotel. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. When I was sure. in college, Our, we didn't get to stay there. We stayed at the Holiday Inn <laughs> over. Down the street. Oh no, we stayed at the Holiday Inn over on over by Overton Square by, ba- or, by Baptist Hospital. Oh, by, by Overton Square. That was the nicer one. Yeah, yeah. And our producer got to stay at the Peabody, mm-hmm. so we would have meetings at the Peabody <laughs> and then take a cab back to the yeah. shitty hotel and take a cab. <laughs> right, or right. I don't know. Back then, probably just got hammered and drove. Right. Who cares? Yeah, just yeah. drove straight up Madison or whatever. Funny. Yeah, we were making a record over there. We made a record at, in, uh, at Kiva Studios, which used to be owned by the Barquets, I think. And it's now the House of Blues studio, if it's even still there. But it was right off Lamar, mm. uh, tucked away in a little neighborhood there. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you did. I hope we were very kind. I oh, know. absolutely. I was probably, I, I I was was... probably kind. Our producer was definitely liked to drink. I remember we were there one time, and we were drunk. And there was last call. It was the end of the night. And my bass player to this day, I don't think he remembers saying this, but it's freaking Danny Thomas. No kidding. It's Danny Thomas and the freaking mayor and the police chief. <laughs> really? And, and we know because our friend Gary Bells owned the... Right, yeah. So he was our he owned the studio, and he was like my existential producer. And they owned he, the he Peabody of, and all that stuff. Yeah, his family did, and he owned the Bells family. Mm-hmm. All and, and I actually made another record at Kiva later when I had a, had a nervous breakdown called Down Out Law. It was just basically me and Gary, and he was just very... He's really into Sai Baba. He's really into spirituality and Indian things like that. And he gave a lot of money to those to, to Sai Baba and such. We're sitting there, and he tells us, like, you know, that's you know, whatever. They're like, "Hey, Gary," and whatever. So they're walking to the uh, escalator to the elevator, and and my baseball goes, "Yo, Soupy, oh, no. Soupy Sales," <laughs> to Danny Thomas. He's calling Danny Thomas Soupy Sales, and I was like, "Dude." <laughs> And that's the he, guy who's that's Mr. St. Jude right yeah, there. And then he died like two weeks later. Oh no. Danny Thomas, last time I saw him was getting in the elevator. And I remember Danny Thomas was in nineteen seventy-two. I was at the Boy Scout Jamboree. We took a school bus from Milwaukee to Pennsylvania mm. with a hundred people in a school bus. It was yeah. three to a seat. And uh Danny Thomas was our 
entertainment. Wow. That's it was pretty a big. big deal. That's pretty it's big. big deal. Yeah. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with Kevin in just a second. But first, I want to remind you that I'm doing comedy somewhere near you, or maybe not near you, but maybe near somebody you know, and you could tell them to come to see me do comedy live. May 24th, I'll be featuring for Rocky Dale Davis at the Atlanta Punchline. June 1st and 2nd, I will be at the Limestone Comedy Festival in Bloomington, Indiana, USA, Limestone Comedy Festival. June 23rd and 24th, I will be headlining the Comedy Catch in Chattanooga, Tennessee, my first full weekend headlining at a club. Please tell your friends who live in Chattanooga or thereabouts to come out and see me at the Comedy Catch June 23rd and 24th. Similarly, I will be co-headlining the Charlotte Comedy Zone with Paul Faravar on July 23rd, Charlotte Comedy Zone. Tell your friends in Charlotte and other areas. I also have a bunch of country club shows coming up. If you happen to be in the Atlanta area and you belong to one of these clubs, Dunwoody Country Club, June 8th, and at the Atlanta Athletic Club on August 31st. Oh, also May 25th, I'll be hosting for Matthew Broussard at the Piedmont Driving Club. And hey, that reminds me, if you, dear listener, belong to a country club or private club of some kind and you want to have a comedy event at your club, reach out to me at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I've done over 20 of these in the past two years and they are awesome. Private comedy show right in a place where everybody knows where they can park. They're going to get to see their friends in an environment they're comfortable in. They get the drinks poured the way they like them. Hit me up. We'll plan an event at your club. Paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Now back to Kevin Kinney. How'd you go from Milwaukee in between the Ramones and, and your Dylan phases and being in Atlanta right. starting bands? Well, I did Ramones phase, and then I met my friend Richard, who was in another band, a band called The Oil Tasters. He took me to see a movie called Don't Look Back, which was re-released for the first time since it came out because Dylan had blocked it for some reason. So it came out 78, 79, maybe it was 80. And we went and saw it. I thought, oh, okay. I thought folk singers were like, douchebags that would hit on my, you know, like Jim, you know, I don't know, Gordon Lightfoot, Jim Croce. They were all basically the same people, right? I mean, I don't know. They were all... Gordon Lightfoot just died. I know. Well, I know. The wreck of the Ella Fitzgerald. Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> the Ella Fitzgerald. The wreck of the Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> but so I had a new appreciation for singer-songwriters mm. at that time. I was like, oh, wow. This Dylan, he's a punk. He's an asshole. His interview with the Time Magazine guy in that is just brilliant. And don't look back. He just destroys the guy. What do you say to him? You'll have to watch it. Just watch Dylan. He's just like, what do you mean, man? You know, well, don't you feel? He's kind of in in that transition period Mm -hmm. where Dylan's just picking him apart. He's at his best of like everything he asks him. Like, just ask me a question. Why did you play the electric guitar? Electric? What is electric? Electric to you, electric to me. It's electric. I mean, isn't everything electric? I mean, is it, I mean, your body has impulses. I mean, sure. aren't you, I mean, you know, you're talking about a microcosms of dispersing energy from your body. I mean, that's the electricity. I mean, that's thought. That's reality. <laughs> that's religion. I mean, to you, I mean, you'd write that in your little magazine. Not that anybody really cares because people just read it when they're taking a shit or whatever. <laughs> Nobody really cares about you. I mean, you're not really even real. Go electric. What does that mean, Electric. What's electric? You know, mm. that would be like a. He would just like go off on a tangent, yeah. And this and this make this poor English guy like. It didn't serve me well later in life when I became when I tried to do that in interviews, like in the Fly Me Crazy era. You know, I tried to do that when I would be 
do six interviews a day mm-hmm. by the fifth or sixth one, I'd just be like picking them apart. And instead of like them putting that on, like Kevin Kinney's really edgy, they'd right. just be like, how was your interview with Kevin Kinney? I don't just, I, just threw I threw it away. <laughs> You'll know, no one will ever hear it. They didn't appreciate Nobody, the, he's not, the Dylan-esque he, he vibes. He thinks he's bigger than he is. It's yeah. not, it was my impression. He thinks he's Bob Dylan. He's trying to do a Dylan on me. So what did that movie do for you? It just kind of once it did the same thing the Ramones did for me. It, it showed words and, and music were just simple, you know, because I was never going to be Sticks, you know. Yeah. You know, I was never going to, you know, I was never going to be Springsteen or Sticks or have all these instrumentation. So it was bare bones idea meets thing, which is a lot for me. Was I really wanted to be a writer? I think that I probably have one of the syndromes that it's hard for me to focus on thousands of words like writers do. I have great respect for people who can write like that. So in a song, you could take a story idea, Mm -hmm. a couple of key lines, like you had me at, you had me at hello. Sure. Just do that, a melody. So you can do a soundtrack, an outline, and a couple of lines from the movie in two and a half minutes, you have yourself, you know. I grew up just west of the tracks. Hold me down, you hold me back. I don't even know what that means. Around your door, she's calling. I mean, I don't even know what mm. hold me down, hold me back. I was surprised when Darius did it and actually sang it because I was like, I have no idea what that line is. <laughs> when you heard Darius sing it, that was, that was. I was like, hold me down, hold me back. I was like, what does oh, that mean? Wow, I wish I would have. If, if I knew other people were going to hear this, because there was a throwaway song on the record. Like, the, was it really? I, yeah, it was just like a dumb song on the end of the record. I yeah. Just, and that became the song you have to close with. That's became the song I have to do no times. matter what I do. Yeah, I would think that that would be honeysuckle blue for, for a lot of people because that's more it. anthemic than it is. Well, we started, we switched it out. Yeah, we used to open with honeysuckle blue, and then and then it was straight to hell. But now I put straight to hell like three quarters of the way through because mm-hmm. I'm kind of like I want to just get rid of either. The you people. don't want that to be the last thing you play at night. I don't really want it to be the last thing I play because <laughs> I, I also the more tired I am, the more it, Sucks, right? You know, so what do you and I close really with, have to push. What do you close I with just now? close with high suckle, or mm. we've been we've been opening and closing with the same song. Like we have this instrumental, like <laughs> Eric Von Hessel uses it for his radio show here, mm-hmm. and uh, it's called Space Side. So that's ultimately my favorite is when we open up with the with the instrumental and then close with the instrumental, and then like thank you, good night. It's like a yeah. theme song, you know, right. That's my favorite thing that I've done in a while. Like kind I thought, it just says it's brackets over. the show, right? It brackets yeah. the show. So I that's Bookends, that's like one that. of my favorite things mm-hmm. that that we can do. And then I do straight to hell at the end of the folk set. And then if people need to go home because the babysitters are <laughs> or, or dog right. sitters, hello dog. Yes, we do. Gotta get home. They get the. I always thought straight to hell we're good to go. Yeah, and they miss only second blue. That's okay. What were those years like? So you were a big, big regional band. You're playing what I think you called it the Kudzu Circuit. Yeah, the Kudzu Circuit. Playing colleges and clubs all around the Southeast. And you go from regional to getting a contract with Island and eventually Geffen. What were those years like making music videos and kind of taking a shot at a more national platform? Well, there's a lot of compromise involved. And it was really a lot. It's like a lot of Q rating. Mm. Like you're gonna get a do a video, but you're not gonna get 
the best video or you're going to or and people are spending millions of dollars on videos back then, right? Yeah, they were spending a, a couple hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it was like winning in a I always thought as like winning an award in a back of a like a cream magazine like <laughs> you go to a movie set for a day. Right. You know, you have you ever done a movie? Uh, I've, been I've like an extra not, or no, anything like that, no. but I mean, I've been, just, I've, I've been around some of that, but yeah, it was just like, you know, it's like the, the, there's catering and there's directors and producers and the PAs and there's train tracks with cameras on them. And this is after eight that. years of living in your van, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was not, you know, it was like you had the U2s and your REMs and then you had like us, we weren't really catered to a video and then. Literal translations of our stuff. I mean, the, the Can't Promise You the World one, I think, is my favorite one because it's just silly, like the monkeys. I would have rather... I think the replacements have a really good one where they're just sitting there smoking and the beakers rumbling or something. I mean, I wish I would have been at more of a, a statement or avant-garde or a link. Mm. I like how the drive-by truckers all have like, the same cover mm-hmm. artist. You know, I love that they can do that. There's continuity. And we're from- just all over the place. I mean... Yeah. I tell people the good thing about Driver Crying is that we created our own genre. The bad thing about Driver Crying is we created our own genre. Right. You know, you won't find us on best of the 80s, best of the 90s, best of the underground, best of the... You won't find us on best of alternative. You won't find us on best of Southern rock. You won't find us in best of folk. You won't find us on any collection. We don't mm-hmm. exist at all in any of those worlds. It's like, I wish we would have had a little more... I would have been a little more aware of how I really wanted to make a video, you know, Fly Me Courageous is, it's like, that was the um, era where they're like poison and there's like big hair, but I don't want to do that. So I'm like, in a, I'm not letting anybody tease my freaking hair. And, but like the other guys, they had like, I don't know. I didn't want to rain anyone's parade. I was just kind of just doing it. Cause I, I kind of approached it in like a pop art way. Like this is going to be pop, whatever it is. It, yeah. is. it is what it is. I don't need to make it worry about it but you know i'm not a dancer i'm not like michael's a front man bono's a front man i just i don't even want to be here (laughs) so so i want to you know i think the ultimate like i would have done everyone as as a marionette or a puppet show like everyone would have been the same like driving crime video Mm -hmm. would have been a different kind of use a different kind of artist like a visual artist cartoons I would have made it like that, yeah. like where everyone is a different cartoon mm-hmm. or a different, and then just take it or leave it, you know. That would have been, if I could go back and do it, I would not be in any of them. I would have somebody else be in them. You know, like I thought the the Blues Traveler one was freaking awesome. That was Which my one? favorite For one. But anyway, the one where they're, uh, the one where they're not in the, there's like a young band playing them, and then they're yeah. like backstage. Oh, playing. funny. It's a really great video where uh-huh. like John Parker was like, this ass don't sell. <laughs> Doesn't sell records, you know. No, no. And so, and then like the more weight that I gained, and all the the drugs I took, and then the whiskey and the traveling, and the stress of being trying to raise a family, and just psycho crap, and it was just a nightmare to me that whole era. Like I've never been happier than I am now, but it was really hard to try to. I make everybody happy because I'm trying to make everybody happy and I should have been more like, I don't want to make anybody happy. Fuck all y'all. And then it would have maybe, I don't know if that would would have worked. Does that mean, so, so when you say you're trying to make really every, that kind of person, you have to make the label happy and you have to make the label happy by putting out more 
radio friendly songs or and making more commercially attuned videos than you m- might have wanted to or I mean did we didn't really have any hit videos I mean we had the Fly Me Courageous was the only one anybody mm-hmm. ever watched and mm-hmm. it was okay I don't know what it means I don't know why we're in a train <laughs> Well, if you look at any of the old videos, I don't know. I, I, you know, Billy it's Squire. So there was like one video killed Billy Squire's career. Did you know? it really? Because well, he's like dancing around in his underwear, and people were like, they thought it was like a gay thing, which back then oh. was a bigger deal than it is now, right? Right. But like Billy Squire was like a rock guy, right? Played a mean guitar, but then right. this video is like, well, what is that? And nobody wanted you got to hear judged from him on again. Your video. You got judged on your video, yeah. Which isn't even your song. Which it kind of feels like. Instagram Reels and TikTok today, where it's like, I don't want to make videos. I want to do stand up comedy. Right. But if you want to have a platform, you've got to do that shit. Yeah. Because otherwise, you can't sell tickets. Right. That's how you get booked. Clubs are like, do you sell tickets or do you not? Right. If you sell tickets, we'll book you. If you don't, you exactly. Don't. And so, so I, I'm trying to not resent it. And I'm trying to go like, okay, this is a blank canvas that I can do anything I want on. But I'm not sure how to show up authentically on that canvas yet. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure that out. But the good thing is, is it costs nothing. And I don't have to go, I, I don't have to take two weeks off to go make a video with some avant-garde director who's right. got a vision that has nothing to do with what I want to bring to life. I, I tried to enjoy it for the moment. Like I said, trying, like I want a contest or something, but I wouldn't want to start up. I, I wouldn't know how to start a band today. I don't know how, to, how I would feel about constant barrages of you know jason isabel's wife she's like she can just do that like she's out there like mm. everything about she's always and like god bless her but i wouldn't freaking do that right i'm not that I'm, i don't i don't want that i don't want you knowing what i had for dinner or <laughs> i don't know it's your goddamn business i i really like yeah. i like a little bit of mystery you know and there's a lot of people that can go out there like like DJ Khalid or something. He's like, he's always out. I don't know what the guy does. He's posting his golf but videos. But he's huge. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I get Taco Bell pizza or something. Like, there's that guy again, famous for being, I guess maybe he makes beats and stuff like that. But I have, I have no idea. But if he didn't make TikTok videos or whatever, no one would know who he was. I yeah. don't think, you know. Like, you know, Danger Mouse or, you know, you know there's a lot of people that are just great i mean i don't need to be constantly posting i can find you i would like people to find me but like you say man if you're trying to get a gig man they're looking at your how many followers you got they're looking at i guess it would be a different way of sucking up i guess the way we did it was we did thousands of interviews and ready to go get up at six in the morning and go do 99x or whatever that is you're in cincinnati and you're doing and you go in in the morning and you drive there and you sit there it's like yeah we got kevin kenny on the road got kevin kenny from driving and crying here in the studio how you doing kevin <laughs> little sleep that was what kevin kenny from driving and crying <laughs> thank you so much for coming out of the studio tonight whoa oh we got a whoa we got a we got a zoo crew alert it's gonna rain this afternoon and you're like you're just sitting there like you know, so I mean, I did that. So I guess I could do TikTok. Yeah. You know, at least it's in my house. Edwin McCain's <laughs> Edwin's got a great. He's Edwin's TikToking all the time. Is he? Yeah. See, he needs to teach me how to do it. I don't. I mean, I don't know. He's got like a couple hundred thousand followers. No way. He does. Oh, good for him. 
Um, well, he should tag me. Tag him, Edwin. <laughs> um, you said you've never been happier. What's What's good about performing at 60-something years old? What do you like about it? Uh, I just feel very... I'm, I feel uh, like I got enough ammo, you know, to do anything. I mean, mm. I can do... I, I mean, I go from... You know, like opening for the Indigo Girls and Amy, where I can just feel very free to say what I want to say and be who I want to be and not really worry about it and do that. And then um, I also can go open at the, uh, you know, the Tifton Barbecue Fest, which is full of barbecue and guns and Mm -hmm. drinking. There's the right to carry, and there's nobody checking guns. Mm. And here I am, in the two, three thousand people, a spotlight on me, and drunk people with guns. And I gotta like, hmm, will I get shot tonight? I don't know. <laughs> it's very possible. I better watch what I say. I dedicated a song to Jimmy Carter, right? And I got crickets in the audience. Oh, and I thought, oh, I thought, oh. oh shit! I thought Jimmy Carter would be safe. Wow. Jimmy Carter's not safe to say here at Tifton because he was a Democrat once and or whatever. But, you know, he's kind of a good guy. He's from around the corner. And he loves music. Yeah. So anyway, it keeps me on my toes. But I am I feel confident that I don't really have to. I think me, I thought me and Todd Snyder were talking about, like, we're done auditioning. Right. I don't, I'm back to where I was before I ever had a record contract. Like, I don't care if you like me. You know, I mean, there's freedom in that. There's a freedom in like I'm just gonna do what I do, and I'm here to do what I do. And if you don't like it, then you can leave. Or there's a certain. I think I'm attracting more people by not pushing so hard and right. trying to make them like me. Mm-hmm. So I don't really care if you like me. Yeah. So this is what I do. This is my song. These are the chords. I'm gonna sing them. I start my shows off with a song. Is it goes? I've just come here to sing to myself <laughs> from what I took off my shelf. From under my bed until I cleared my head and I was ready to listen and I'll sing you some songs from my past to remind you of times wrapped up in rhymes when you needed me most like keys in a road and I've got some stern words for me to keep me complete and away from the dogs that kept me up all night long to borrow my soul to fill empty rooms you know and I've come here to take myself back pat myself on the back say it's okay I did it my way I shot myself in the foot so I could go home and I've just come here to sing to myself from what I took off my shelf from under my bed Till I cleared my head. And if you want, you can listen. Because <laughs> this song's for me. And if you want, you can listen. If you want, you can listen. So that's kind of where I, I set my show up at, at for folk shows now. It's like, I'm here to sing to myself. I'm here to heal myself. Because that's pretty much when I came to the conclusion of these. I wrote all these songs really kind of to heal myself, mm. to Self-help therapy, you know, a lot of them are, you know, for me. I think a lot of people write like that, you know. And you, you realize this in retrospect? I realize it in, in the last 10 years. The first, like, we did the shows with the Black Crows recently. Mm-hmm. And there's an animosity between us and the Black Crows. 
from 1991 to last year. I've never had a crossword with the Black Crows, mm. with Chris. I love them. I've always loved them. I see his things. And they didn't know it either. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It was really great that they reached out and asked us to open for them. Mm-hmm. It was a really cleansing thing because I, you know, and it was just great to be able to text them like I've always wanted to. But there was this competition, musical competition, art competition of art, which doesn't make any sense to me. It's like they are who they are and people like them for what they do. And like for some reason, I, my crew or my people were like, yeah, they, they took your spot. I've got to tell anybody who's ever listening to this event, you have your spot and that's your spot. No one can take your spot. If somebody gets more famous than you, that's just because they're identifying better. But nobody jumped. You don't, you, if you've toured for six years or 10 years, like you've been doing comedy for what, 15 years or whatever, 10, 10 full years, time, yeah. 10 years. You know, if somebody comes around tomorrow and is headlining, that's just their thing. Mm-hmm. Somebody, they did, they hit on something and it's, but it's not, anything you should be mad at them about or it's, like, it's fuck h- that guy it's hard not to it's, feel that though i know it it's is really hard not very to hard feel to that. feel that way especially well i didn't I, I didn't have this realization 30 years ago like yeah. i'm having it in the last i had the last 20 years or so i mean right around 1995 or 96 i was like why what is with this why do i think there was a competition between anybody this is kind of after the Fly Me Courageous, sort of the, well, just all after, the activity. After the you've peak. been dropped from a couple labels. Right. And you're sitting there, like, and you have no label and nobody wants you. And driving to cry. And I mean, this sounds like a bitch session. It's, it's really not because I'm no, really I happy think beer. It's super but, interesting. But driving crying is like an alternative band. We are, for some reason, because we had a hit, we're seen as like, I don't know what band to insert here, but. We've made our own records and paid for our own records. My last record is on my label. The last 13 albums that we've made, we all like paid for mm-hmm. or created or created the ball rolling and maybe got somebody to help us finance the pressing of it or something like that. But we've been making our own records. We have no, you know, you're talking about bands like the Chili Peppers or U2 or they've been, or Sonic Youth or even like the Smashing Pumpkins or people who are deemed alternative bands have been live suckling off the teat of a major label their whole career, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm like, I, I'm seen as a sellout and I'm fundraising and making my own records. So. Who sees you as a sellout? Oh, I, I think a lot of people see us as a, they don't see us as an alternatively, you know, interesting band. They're like, oh, they're like, they're the, that's a straight to hell fly me band. Oh, come on. I don't know. I don't. I mean, that doesn't. That, that just doesn't make sense for for a band that's as good as you guys are, and are, are you know are regionally adored in the southeast. Well, try to find an article about us in any in anything like paste. You will be on the Crazy Money podcast. So. Well, that's see. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. You got to start saying yes. I say yes to everything. Well, uh, when Ed was like, "You should do this interview," I said, "Yes, I will do that. That sounds like fun." And I've been doing a lot, a lot more. Saying yes a lot more, but you're things. not. But but you're not seeing. But you won't see us in any. You won't. You won't see us in jam band magazines. You won't right. see us. But you're not a jam in alternative. Band. Thank bands. God you're not a jam band. <laughs> we're better than jam bands. I don't. Uh, my buddies love jam music. I don't. I just can't stand it. I don't understand. I, I'm a bummer to the. Jam. I've I've opened for widespread before, and I think that I I bum their audience out. Say <laughs> like, what is this with the words? <laughs> what is this with the words? 
It was really uncomfortable. I, I left with Savannah once, and the audience like <laughs> kind of turned on me. Like I was kind of like, ah, "Why are you making us think?" My buddies came to town for a fish show, and I went with them, and I left halfway through. Yeah, and they would go, "We were surprised you made it that long." <laughs> it's a different. You have it's to, just not and, my thing, man. You have it's to just invest not my yourself thing. into it. It's like being a you know reading the Twilight series or being. It just have to be in it. Right. I'm not in it. I don't really get it. I mean, I watch it and I can get some of it. I mean, widespread, Jimmy Herring is amazing. The schools mm-hmm. is amazing. Individually, mm-hmm. they're all great. And I love the thing. They're, and I have nothing bad to say about widespread, but it does make me a little bit jealous that they just can just say, we're doing six nights at the Fox. At Madison Square Garden, and right. And it's like, <laughs> wonder how long, long that'll take to sell. Oh, hold out. <laughs> it's like, What? <laughs> Yeah, sold out. Six nights. Right. Like, how long did that take? 11 minutes. Okay. Okay. And so are you... I'm playing shenanigans in Greenville (laughs) in two months. Please come. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) What do you want people... You said said some people call you a sellout. I don't don't buy that, by the way. But what do you want people... To, to think about your music if, if you could if you could write your own review what would flatter you or what would know that the person writing it gets it i would like to be relevant and for 30 years mm. you know like this is just heartfelt Amer- you know some guy sharing his outlook on what the world is and what you know all very universal i guess i just what would be a compliment that i would accept <laughs> First of all, that guy was sexy. <laughs> I would take that over smart any day. Uh, just not my, I don't have the discipline. A lot of what we do as performers and writers is like, you just really have to focus on the next mountain. Like what's over the next mountain? There's always another hill. You're always trying to like say, well, over the next mountain, it's going to be better. It's going to be a little bit easier than over that next mountain. That's like it is, and then you go to the next mountain. You just keep on going, 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 and going, and hopefully something can happen. So, kind of in my qualifying mind, I'm writing for people who aren't even born yet. Like I'm hoping that in 30 years, someone who's born today, you know, I'll be 90, and they'll be like, "Wow, there's this catalog of these guys. They're called Driving and Crying, totally ignored by most." You know, they had a moment, but then they really didn't fit anybody's category. They were really interestingly weird. They kind of had they they had like hard rock, like like metal songs. Then they had, and then that, right after that, it was like kids, the wind, and then it was like rush hour. You know, maybe they'll appreciate it. I'm yeah. hoping that I'll be appreciated later in life. So right now, like when I'm making records, I'm not. I really am not trying to make them for today. Because I don't have the money to really push. I mean, I really look back and see what major labels had. Like they had art departments. You know, I got to make my own art. And then, then I had. Uh, I mean, you saw me design You're a just poster in it, my yeah, van. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm in my, my van. Where did you make that poster? At? In my van, in between stoplights. <laughs> uh, you know, we had art departments, and we had publicity departments, and they yeah. had marketing departments and all that stuff that we that that's what and now they have social media signed, de- social media departments and yeah, email when, marketing and, and when all. you get signed to a major label you really you know really helpful tool 
that you have to do all by yourself when you don't have that, when you're independent. I'm constantly working on the puzzle in my head, like, what what do I do next? Mm-hmm. Why do I do it? You know, so right now, in my head, what I want to do next is do a Driver and Crying anthem record. I want to do, like, a full-on rock record that's just kind of bordering on cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> it probably won't be too cheesy, it probably should be cheesier than I, than it's going to turn out to be. But I wanted to just be like one record that's just rock. Like there's no folk music on it. It's just all the way through a heavy rock record. Sabbath, maybe the slow songs would be not acoustic, would maybe be more heavy. So that's what I'm going to try to do that. Now, why do I want to do that? I don't know. Who's going to buy it? I don't know. Does it matter? I don't know. So why are you going to do it? Well, because I feel like it, it was going to move me forward in my own in my own feeling like, what haven't I done yet? I want to fill up all the little ice cube trays of ideas. I want to make sure they're all full. And there's a, there's still about a dozen that aren't full yet that I would like to do, you know. A few things that I'd like to try to, try to do. I'd like to do a spoken word record, maybe. Maybe a rock record. I'd like to do a really good Take Advantage of All My Friends in Nashville record all these great players that play a show crow and stuff like that. All my friends that are in my little Nashville circle, I've never made a record with them. I have a duet record coming out with the guy from BR549, Chuck Mead. So that's going to be fun. I like to do a duet record with a girl, with a girl like Elizabeth Cook, a duet record where it'd be like me and Elizabeth Cook, me and Amy Ray, mm-hmm. me and some of my, me and Michelle again. So I have like four or five things that I want to do that keeps me moving forward. Right, You know, this record came out. I don't know if anyone's ever going to hear about it. I like it. I think it's good. I think if you buy it on iTunes, I think that's fine with me. The good thing about what I'm doing now, the way the world is now, the TikTok, whatever, the, besides the TikTok, but the Spotify and the iTunes, you don't get paid as much. Fly McCray's probably sold a million copies, and we still owe money on that somehow. You know, we still haven't <laughs> right. recouped. And we never went platinum because a lot of people bought it on record clubs. You oh, know? my God. So you didn't get any credit for that. I haven't recouped on the Columbia Record House yeah. <laughs> deal that I had right. from 1988. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the music is out there to find. Mm-hmm. You know, when this record came out, it didn't have very many copies of it. There's no reason somebody can't listen to this record. And that's really great for me to know that somebody in Seattle, if I can let them know it exists, they can go to Spotify and listen to it. They don't have to try. They don't have to drive to Spokane to buy the CD or try to find the album, which is what how records were in '85 and in, in 1979 when the Sex Pistols came out or the Clash came out with a new 45. Me and Clancy would drive to Chicago and hope they still had a copy. Oh wow! And we would take that 45 back to Milwaukee, 90 miles, and play it and be like, "Oh man, this is so great!" Right? You know, Tommy Gun. You know, like this is. Awesome. Mm. That bit of romance is, is not there anymore. But I really like the fact that if I'm having a conversation with somebody in Salt Lake City where I nobody knows who I am, I haven't played there in 30 years, I can go, you should check this out. Here's my new record. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I really like that. I love that. I love that part about, about the new thing. Now, if you're Metallica and you've sold... Your royalties went from selling 7 million records to only selling a million because now 6 million people buy it and you're only getting a penny. 
that I could see where they're like, oh, we're losing like millions of dollars. On the other end, for us poor little boxcar folk singers, it's great news. <laughs> you know, I had 14 people hear it in Spain yesterday. Yeah. That's huge for me. That's great. So I'll take my wins as I find them. Boxcar Willie. Will you take us out on one of the new ones? A new song? Yeah. Sure. You want to cry or not cry? Oh, God, don't make me cry. Okay. <laughs> Colonel, do you want to cry or song not cry? For, you play... No, hang on. I got to get a, a picture of you with Colonel. Oh, yeah. We'll do that after. First Colonel's to wake up. I want you to play whatever you want to play because I want to hear the new ones. I'm not going to the bathroom, Kevin. Well, this is a... Well, my favorite one is Wishes, so I'm going to play Wishes. But this is not a new song. Oh, shit. What was that? <laughs> oh, that was Jump Hopper. Play, on Scarred But Smarter. Somehow, oh. the iPhone just opened. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe because I said Kevin... Ke- I don't know. Are you still anyway. recording? No. Uh, yeah, we're recording, but that was Spotify that just oh, opened. Oh, that's awesome. See? So, there you it's go. that easy. There you I go. He goes, hey, Siri, play me. <laughs> yeah, play Wishes. I love Wishes. So Wishes is a, is a good story, that song, though, because it was... I'm, and I'm playing with Tom Clark tomorrow, my friend Tom Clark. Who I originally recorded it in his basement, like in 1998 or something like that. I remember. Hang on a second. Uh oh. Why is this not? That's green. That's now they're all on. Why the? It says they're all recording. I don't know what we're gonna get. You still got the audio, right? I got the audio right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, then we'll just do a puppet show. That's the way you wanted to do it anyway. Yeah. Did your daughter to you make some marionettes. goddamn puppets of us and just make us go like this? You know, a couple of things like, My oh, daughter's art room Poor me. My career has been very hard. <laughs> the sad face. <laughs> I wish I could have been more famous. We'll put you in a Black Crows t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would wear a Black Crows t-shirt. They're so awesome. I love the Black I really Crows. Think I saw that, with the Beacon like three times. I think times. he's one of the best American rock singers. And I really was excited to see him and Steven Tyler. I mean, I'm going to go to that as an audience member. So I've seen the Black Crows a bunch of times. I didn't love their jam band phase. But in those years when they were playing like Faces, oh, he was God. like Rod. He was yeah, sexy and he was yeah. just He's really he smart and he's really well read. And him and Rich both are very well read mm-hmm. and very... It's been really fun. Uh, the best. Did you read of, the book, the drummer book? No, I don't really read rock biographies, and I definitely wasn't going to read that one. I don't know. Once again, just do a little puppet show, like like <laughs> I was in the Black Crows, and shit wasn't exactly the way I thought it would be. I made a lot of money, but you know these guys were fighting, and that wasn't cool. But eventually, I wound up doing this and that, and it's cool. This is not. It's not interesting to me. Yeah. Music biographies are not interesting to me. I'm more into. I would read a small paperback about a session. Mm. Like I would be more interested in reading like like a John Lennon biography. I would be more interested in reading from the minute he wrote a song to saying I want to make this record, the building of an album, the getting of the musicians, the demos, the going in the studio, the process of making it, the mixing it. I'd be interested in that. Like I'd be interested in or in a Johnny Cash instead of a Johnny Cash movie, I'd be interested in like 
Ring of Fire, an right. hour-long episode on how we wrote it, how we put this together, how we said no to that, how other people wanted to tell them to do that. I mean, that's I'm more interested in like the process. Like the Black Crows have a lot a record that I really like that nobody really likes, and I don't even know if they like it, but it's called Lions. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. There's an Indigo record, Indigo Go record that's not very famous, and they made it in England, and I just learned about it because on this tour they do a song called Go and I think it's a great song and then I asked Amy about it she said oh it was a record we made with Shane O'Connor's band and we made it in England like bam right there I would read a nice long article about the making of that I'm not interested in whether the drummer eats too many candy bars and he put that candy bar (laughs) under the bench and then I woke up and right before the show I had like chocolate all over the back of my shirt and I like fuck you and then we got into a big fight because I was like I got chocolate I don't really give a shit shit happens I'm from a family of five kids yeah Shit happens. I'm one of six. I'm not stunned that shit happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of my favorite bumper stickers ever. I was like, I was like, I think the very first time I saw a shit happens bumper sticker, I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I saw a girl at the coffee shop the other day with an ACDC shirt, but it said ADHD or ADHD. ADHD. Thought, that's funny. That's awesome. I yeah. said that's awesome. <laughs> So uh, so anyway, this this song, Wishes, I wrote this when I was driving down the highway from Columbia, South Carolina to Athens, and I came up with this, dun, 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 dun. I was like, I'm going to forget that. I really, and so it was before these, we had recording machines. So I called my answering machine in Athens and was like, you know, hey, and I sang it into my phone. Right. And so oh, that's this, funny. This song's been in process for so long, so I finally recorded it on an album, so it's... Just, I dedicated to carnies and comedians. <laughs> On the banks of the Mississippi, slowly winding down past San Luis. My grandfather swam. We could talk about the past. We could talk about today or what could be. Out on the highway I've been traveling I'd like to tell you all about last night's show About that man at the end of the bar was kind of crazy Where did he come from? Where'd he go? I heard last night you went out drinking Carousing the night with all of our friends I heard you drink some wine you danced with all the guys I could see your smile On the phone Out on the vastness of these westlands Or walking the caverns of New York town You would be so wild Romancing tomorrow's child But tonight is just a hope Of what could be I washed my worries in the waters Of a setting tide and a rising sun to be I'm alone with my thoughts as they drift in and out I wish that you were standing here with me In all of these wishes that I'm wishing You're the one I wish that would come true And all of these miles 
that I'm driving I wish that I was driving one with you And all of these stories that I'm telling I wish that I was singing one to you And all of these wishes that I'm wishing I wish that I was sitting next to you I love it. Yeah, a little traveling song. Something life on the road. Yeah, life on the road. You can't share with the one you love the day to day of playing shows and. I mean, you want to be positive, and I bitch a lot, you know. <laughs> so you'd make a great. But it's like unbelievable. You'd make a great comedian. I mean, my things. I did a show at Athens the other day, and it was this beautiful basement of this. It's called the Indigo Hotel. It was in the basement. Yeah. It was like I had only had 60 people or 70 people. And there was a guy that was a hotel guest that got in, that came into the show. He shouted out for the first 10 songs randomly. Chili Peppers. <laughs> Bridge song. And, he, and the first time I was like, ah, oh, that's funny. But like by the eighth time, nobody was saying anything to him. And I was I didn't want to approach him. Uh. So it was just really you had to stay focused and hope somebody said something to him because I didn't want to make it part of the show. So it was just, and he stole the show because now that's all I can think of because oh it could have been a great show, yeah. but it didn't get elevated to the greatness that I could have had it. I mean, I did my best, but I, I wound up playing too long when that happens because I'm t- still trying to reset myself and I, I yeah, kind of yeah. ruin it, but. You know, it's so weird, like, getting... Everyone just mentioned one thing, just to give props to my friend Ed Rowland, because I know he's a friend of yours, and he's a friend of mine. Mutual Respect Society. The last Click the Soul record. Great record. Yeah. It just doesn't get heard. Like, yeah. people aren't talking about it, and I don't know how they sell it, and they people are going to come see us at the Fox on Saturday. It's going to be great. But it's just like, I wish... Listen, I always buy my friends' records, like, right off yeah. the bat. I buy them first day. I listen to the whole thing, and I really devour it. It's a great record. I'm like, this is a very great record. He's always writing. He's, he's always, always going for it. So I think he's on the same page. It's like he's leaving a legacy mm-hmm. of box sets and a, a spectrum of books that people can devour later. You know, it's a great story arc between the collective soul because they're just one of those. They're like the cheap trick of it of the South. That's a good. That's a they good. They are way to like describe you go see. Uh, guarantee you uh, take you to see Clay the Soul. Six songs and you'd be like, I can't believe I knew five of those songs. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, our, our leaf blower is here to tell us that okay. it's time to wrap it up. Hey man, thank you so much for doing Thanks, this. Paul. And, and I'm a huge fan. Thank you for all the music you've made. Well, you've thank brought you. a lot of joy to my life. So uh, keep doing it, man. I will keep on doing it. Thanks for having me. Wow, that was super fun. I really enjoyed it, as you can tell. And I was so psyched he brought his guitar. I wasn't expecting that. I wanted to ask him to play a song, but I didn't want to but I didn't want to ask him to play. Because I didn't want to over overreach, you know? It's like when somebody says, Hey, will you tell me a joke? It's like I don't want it. But when he got out of his van and he had his guitar, I was like, sweet. And then we just sat there and he just sort of, you know, like diddled about with it. That was awesome. I really enjoyed that. Lots to take away from this, but what better summary of life for him at 62 to say he's never been happier performing on his terms, playing for himself. And I think one of the big takeaways here is that if you stay in the art game or even in the corporate game or whatever game you're playing, at a certain point you're playing it just for you. 
Now, it might benefit other people, but like you have to play on your terms. If you don't play on your terms, you're going to make yourself miserable. And artistic envy is a young man's game, a young person's game. But men are probably worse at it. I don't know. Are men? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe. I'm not sure who's more envious, men or women. But, but envy is a self-defeating fire that will consume the person who holds on to it. And as he talked about, like, where did it even come from with him and the Black Crows? And there's not just one spot. If you make great stuff, you'll find your audience. I find myself having to remind myself of that all the time. Just keep doing your thing. You'll find your audience. You'll scale, baby. Don't worry. You'll find your spot. There's not just one spot. There's enough spots for everybody who's really, really, really good. Lots more we could talk about, but my biggest takeaway is that I hope that a few people who don't know about Kevin's music or the Black, not the Black Crow's music, about Driving and Crying's music might come to love it as much as I do or even half as much as I do. So by all means, check out that Spotify playlist. The link is in the show notes. Check out where Kevin and Driving and Crying are playing. He's all over the place, so he might be someplace near you very soon. Check out my show dates too. Little old me might be coming to a place near you, Chattanooga. Charlotte, Atlanta, link to my show dates are in the show notes as well. We're going to have an encore episode next week. Don't know who it's going to be, but on May 30th, I've got Bruce Filer, who is a seven-time New York Times bestselling author, author of Life is in the Transitions, author of The Council of Dads, which was made into a TV show and a documentary, and author of a new book called The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. He'll be uh, my guest on May 30th. We had an amazing conversation, and I know you'll enjoy that as well. In the meantime, take care of yourself, and Mike Carano, make me sound smart.